0: 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're actually going to pick up Right where Dave left off last week, this book of 2 Timothy is is the Apostle Paul writing to Timothy with his final instructions. Paul's uh, in kind of some hole somewhere in in prison, somewhere near Rome, and he's likely to be executed soon, and uh, so he's passing on to Timothy the things that he considers to be of most importance. And last week, Dave opened up with chapter 1, this whole message of idea of guard the deposit, guard the gospel, guard the things of the Spirit, guard Paul says to Timothy, all the values, all the things I've taught you. It's like Dave said last week. It's like him writing to me and saying, James, I've taught you all this stuff. Make sure you guard it. As I hand over this thing to you, as you, as you run, take the bat on and run this next leg for however long God would have it, make sure you guard these things. Guard the things that are of most importance. Guard the things that I have taught you, everything you've learned. Don't forget it. Guard it. It's really important. So we're going to pick up where Dave left off, chapter 2, verse 1. You then, my child, Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men and women who will be able to teach others also. So we've had this whole thing in chapter 1, guard it, preserve it. And then these first two verses of chapter 2, pass it on, pass it on. Don't just stay there, pass it on. This, what a responsibility. That's the responsibility from each generation to the next, to guard it, to fight for it, guard it, and then to pass it on. What a responsibility it is for us. But what a privilege. It's exactly what Frank and the guys are doing in passing it on to the next generation right now. This stuff that we have been taught, that we have learned, that we've come to experience, that we've come to value, doesn't just stay with us. We pass it on. Think about it. Paul's message went from a hole somewhere in a ground near in a prison near Rome right to where we are in southeast London standing here today a few thousand years later how did that happen well really simply they believed it they guarded it and then they passed it on this is why we're doing what we're doing this is why we're serious about planting more venues, why we're serious about launching more communities, why we're getting very serious about multiplying everything that we have here and seeing it pass from here to, here to here to here to here to there. It's why we're serious about from one generation to the next. It's why we're serious about from one nation to the next. And I'm so grateful that over the past 2,000 years, at no point did they just stop and go, do you know what that'll do? We'll just hold it to ourselves, thank you very much. We'll, we'll just guard it, we'll just look after it, we'll just go all inward, and we'll forget this whole thing of passing it on to a next generation or to a different nation. Because if anybody had done that at any point in the last few thousand years, we wouldn't be here today. And we wouldn't be enjoying the grace of God and we wouldn't be knowing and standing in the, the wonderful delights of this gospel, knowing that we're forgiven and free, knowing that we have an eternity to look forward to spending with him, knowing that his presence is with us here now and wherever we go and whatever we're doing. Man, am I so grateful that no one stopped over the last 2,000 years, and boy, am I determined that we don't stop over the next however many years that we've got. That's why we're here today. That's why we're going to be launching Welling in a few months' time, and it's not just about going to new places. It's also about continually taking it to the places that we're already in, guarding it and continually passing it and we can have confidence that as we do that as we guard it as we take this seriously as we then pass it on as we declare this gospel as we speak it it will bear fruit in people's lives because lives will be transformed by this gospel and by the empowering presence of the holy spirit and it will happen again and again and again and again and again just as it has for thousands of years and just as it will do till jesus returns but there's a sobering reality that comes with this promise Verse 1 is all, fan into flames, God the deposit. God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power. Come on, let's go. And you're all like, yeah, let's come and pass it on. And then Paul hits us with chapter 2. This is the reality of what it is to be a Christian. Verse 3, share in suffering. <laughs> share in suffering is a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It's the hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent, irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So, flee youthful passions. Pursue righteousness. Righteousness. Pursue faith, pursue love, pursue peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him, To do his will. You know, sometimes scripture is really quite difficult to understand. And other times it's really, really not. We just don't like what it has to say very often. In many ways, this chapter is just the sobering portrait of what it is, what the kind of person is, who the kind of person is that can be used by God. You see, one of the most... um, the worst actually one of the worst possible things that causes the most amount of damage in someone's life lives is is the expectation that i've become a christian and so now all of my problems are going to go away and life is going to be easy life is going to be good for me and life is going to be good to me from this point in it's such a widespread It's such a deeply held viewpoint and it's completely false and it's completely damaging and yet so many of us believe it. Not many of us, if you've been around churches like ours for very long, would say it with our lips. Not many of us would go, yes, of course, become a Christian, all your problems go away, but we actually hold on to it in some deep felt, heartfelt way. How do I know this? Because our responses when there's pain and suffering and trial and hardship and when things don't go our way, suddenly reveal what we're really clinging on to, that somehow it really ought to because I'm good and you're good, God, so why is these not good things happening to me? And it reveals in us when we kind of go, What is this? What is happening? It reveals in us that we're holding on to this false belief that somehow Christian means all things bright and beautiful. And, well, why is it not? See, right after guard it, right after get hold of it right after pass it on paul immediately uses three really powerful yet very simple images of what the christian life is they're like his favorite images he uses them all the time and in his final letter he refers back to them again and he says listen you want to be a christian you want to be someone that god can use here's what it means it means being a dedicated soldier it means being a disciplined athlete it means being a hard-working farmer those metaphors they're not complicated they straight up suggest something brothers and sisters if we're going to guard the deposit." if we're going to pass it on in the way that God has called us to, then we need to get real with our expectations of what this Christian life is, and we need to act accordingly. We've got to be like good soldiers. Paul spent loads of time in prison, so he spent loads of time with soldiers, so he knows exactly what their life is like, and, and, and he sees the parallels between being a soldier and being a Christian, and he calls us here to be a good soldier of Christ. And a good soldier is a dedicated soldier, dedicated in his willingness, if you think about it, to both suffer... And in his willingness to both concentrate and live with focus. You sign up as a soldier. I mean, most of us have never actually kind of have signed up. To, most of us have never been in the army. The closest we've ever got, if you're anything like me, to actually being a soldier is going paintballing. It doesn't really count. But there is that thing when someone goes paintballing and they come back, how was it? Oh, it hurt. It really hurt. People shot me. What did you expect? And that's Paintballing. This is real stuff. No one signs up to be in the military, in the su- into the army, and go, I'm just signing up because it will just be a jolly, we're just going to have a laugh. No, no, no. You sign up fully expecting and knowing that at some point you're most likely going to be called into a situation that is not safe, is not easy, and is dangerous. And good soldiers also, not just prepared for that, they also give themselves a sense of dedication and focus in their lives. They concentrate. They don't get entangled in civilian affairs. They recognize that they're one under authority. It's not just, I'm a soldier, I do what I want. No, no, no. You do what your commanding officer says, and you live your life in order to please him. You live with focus. You sign up, beyond on the barracks. It's not, hey, just head off and muck around the whole time. No, no, no. Commanding officer says this, this is what we do. He says, jump, we say how high. You get what the parallel is, right? Between the soldier and the Christian, the one whose authority we come under, we're not mucking around, we're giving ourselves to this. Listen, this is important. Last week, Ham was away. She was speaking at a conference in Edinburgh, so it was just me and the, the six-year-old, the four-year-old, and the two-year-old. <laughs> On the Saturday, I escaped and took him into central London. Just me by myself. How brave am I? You're stupid. Anyway, my eldest, he's six. He, he loves history, right? And he's got this history book of London... And his favorite chapter particularly is the whole stuff on the war, all right, everything in World War II. And so we're walking around London, and he's like, Daddy, that's the Ch- that's Winston Churchill's statue. And I'm like, okay, Daddy, that's the Battle of Britain Memorial. And I'm like, okay, Daddy, they're the war cabinet rooms. I'm like, how on earth do you know this stuff? He told me a whole load of other things. I'm pretty sure he was lying because I'm pretty sure lizards were involved. But there was loads of, like... Loads of this stuff about war and all this kind of thing that he's teaching me. And, and when we get home, we kind of read his book because he wanted to read that. And we went there and we saw that. And then obviously because he wanted to go on the internet. And I'm a sucker for this because he just, he's like, it's work, Dad. And then we like look at pictures and things. Anyway, so we looked on the internet at what life was like in World War II. And I said to him, What do you think it would have been like to live in the war? And he looked at me and he said, a Bit scary, but probably really quite exciting. Okay, I get the first bit. Why, why exciting? He's like, well, just think about it. You'd have to be ready to fight the bad guys the whole time. Never quite sure what was happening next. Never quite sure if they were going to come and invade and whether we'd have to take them on and fight them. I was like, bless you, you're six. That's amazing. But that's the life of the soldier. Ready, concentrating, focused, prepared. And the truth is, in the actual World War II, people had to remind one another that there was a war going on because we quickly forget. And life becomes very normal. I don't think the soldiers on the front line in World War II, with bullets whistling past their heads and bombs going off everywhere, needed reminding that there was a war on. They got it. Yet everybody back at home in normal life needed reminding. As we were looking in through uh, Eth's book, we were looking and there was all those pictures, those posters that they put up everywhere of World War II, reminding them of the reality as a war. Loose lips sink ships and dig for victory and careless talk costs lives. And put that light out, there's a war on. You remember all those kind of posters, just constantly reminding people there's a war on. Exactly the same in the Christian life. As Terry Virgo says, Christian life is not like a war, it is a war. Not with flesh and blood against people, obviously, but against principalities and powers. There is a reality going on, nothing to fear, but so easy to forget. And so when we do forget it and we're just walking around thinking all things bright and beautiful and then bang, something happens to us and hits us, we're like, whoa, 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 what's that? Why, why is this happening to me? How on? How, what is happening? There's a war on. What did you think is happening? You're paintballing. What did you expect when somebody started shooting at you? And yet we so quickly forget. One Peter four twelve and thirteen says, dear friends, don't be surprised at the painful trial, as if something strange were happening to you. You're participating in the sufferings of Christ. He's the firstborn. He's the forerunner. And where he goes, guess what? We follow. There's a war on. Don't forget it. Don't be distracted by it. Don't go wandering off. A few weeks ago, I was with my kids just watching an animal documentary. Right at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 2, it talks about the snare of the devil. Elsewhere in in 1 Peter 5 verse 8, it says, be watchful because the devil prowls around looking for someone to devour it's not meant to there to frighten us. It's meant to there to give us a reality of what's going on. A few weeks ago, we were watching this animal documentary with my kids, and there's like a bunch of gazelles or something running around. Like, I don't know what they were. They were like deer, but not deer. You know what I mean? All right. And they're all just a big herd of them running around. The music's all, they're all skippy and light and happy. And then, boom, boom, boom. And there's like, the lions come. Like, <laughs> and like, the music sensor on so my door is like, ah. I'm like, just put your cushion over your face, you'll be fine. <laughs> The boys are fixed. And the gazelle's are all just running around, and then one of them, as they all run off that way, one of them just kind of wanders this way, gets distracted by something, and very soon he's off by himself, and the camera's pans to the lions, and they are moving. And my two-year-old goes, uh-oh. <laughs> and guess what, he was right. That gazelle got ripped limb to limb, got devoured. And my eldest, he says, He should really have stayed with the others, yeah. See, even my two year old noticed, two year old noticed that that gazelle should have stayed with the others and shouldn't have got distracted and wandered off. The gazelle didn't, happy, bang. I'm not saying this to frighten us, I'm saying this is a reality. soldier lives Focused, recognizing the times, understanding the situation we find ourselves in. Not, I can do this by myself. I don't really need to go to church every week. I'll be fine. I can do this by myself. I don't really need to read the word of God every day and fill myself up with the truth of every God, God every day. I'll be fine. I don't really need to do this in community and be with others who remind me and strengthen me and, and keep encouraging me and keep exhorting me to keep going. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. I'll be fine. There's <laughs> nothing of fear there's a wake-up reality call we're supposed to be soldiers paul then goes immediately to the athlete the image of the athlete goes from soldier straight away to athlete and that whole image of athlete of uh, training He says literally in verse 5 an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules in no sport, ancient, with the, um Paul would have seen in Greece and all that kind of stuff, no sport, ancient or modern, does anybody just expect as a competitor to turn right up to the game, having done no training, no preparation, and not even play along to the rules and suddenly win. I mean, that would be ridiculous. It would be the equivalent of me just like literally just turning up and deciding, hey, marathon time, I'm here, I'm going to win it with no training whatsoever because I'm really not. And it would be just as ridiculous turning up to a football game and going, right, you play with one ball, 11 a side. No, no, not me. My rules are I play with 20 balls, and I run around, and I pick them up and throw them in the back, of and then I win. No, you don't. Here's the rules. Here's how you play. You want to be successful in something. You train. Some of you know I ride my bike. Well, summer's gone, so the fun's gone, and now it's winter, and it's cold. So hand bought me, because uh, I was like, ah, just wait until the summer. And she's like, no chance. So she bought me from her birthday, an indoor turbo trainer thing, right? It's basically, you attach your bike to it and you ride your bike, pretending you're going somewhere without going anywhere. A <laughs> man, is boring, right? It's boring. So, Chris Smythe, who works in the office, who's like bike obsessive, okay, he said to me, Yeah, it is boring. What you need to do is sign up to this program called Zwift, all right? Zwift basically is a computer game for adults based on virtual reality. You sit there, you ride your bike, and little characters move and you cycle around central London. Like, honestly, it's quite amazing. I was like, Yeah, whatever, it's ridiculous. Then I signed up to it and I went, Well, this is quite good fun. So we're riding Zwift. The thing with Zwift, this is why it is a bit ridiculous. You can be in your bedroom at home, like I was, riding, and on the screen in yellow is there's Chris Smythe, who sat in his house at home, like four miles away, and we're riding together, (laughs) texting each other as we ride. Now, I want you to picture the scene. This was the first time I'd done this, right? Chris trains, he does all the rest of it, and he was like, um, he said to me, well, let's turn up doing a ride, I'm going to do a 25-mile ride, I was like, I can and do 25 miles, that's easy, not thinking in a train, on a trainer, that's really hard, and I've not done anything for this, anyway, decide to do it with Chris, hands out, okay, so I'm in, uh, literally in our bedroom, riding on this thing, going, oh, man, this is hard work, we've been going like a mile and a half, I'm sweating, I'm in like, in a right state, bright red, thinking I want to die, and Chris is texting me going, all right, warm-up's not quite finished yet, warm-up! <laughs> What are you talking about? I'm dying! And then Han comes in. And she's like, um, she's like, you're alright. And I can't even speak. I mean, straight up, not even words, just like one syllable, like that. And she's like, "What are you doing?" Pouring, trying to keep up with Chris. He's like, "Where's Chris?" Like, this is the weird. He's there, that guy in the yellow. And anyway, this whole thing—you can imagine the scenario—utterly ridiculous. And then I get bing, text comes up. Chris says, "You—it all measures your wattage, okay? It's all about the output, the how much." I, single science, I don't know. It's just numbers, all right. It's all—you work harder, you get a higher wattage, okay? And we're we're traveling about 150. and I'm thinking this is good. And Chris goes, "Right, time." Take it seriously. Do you want to step up to 250 for five minutes? No! He's like, why? What's up? I'm dying here! So I'm texting like this, and he's like, and he just laughs at me with that little emoji laughing. I just want to punch his face if I had the energy, but I didn't. I was too tired. I'm like, <laughs> trying to keep my legs going. And at this point, I look at the clock thinking, we must have been doing this 45 minutes. We've been doing it for seven minutes, all right? I am dying. Chris, do you want to take it up to 250? No! What are you doing? I text him. He goes, I'm just eating my dinner. (laughs) But what? He's literally peddling and eating his dinner, going like this, as I'm dying. And here's my point. That boy trains. I just turned up like a mug thinking I could keep up with him. He puts in the hard work and the effort. And I just thought, you know what? I'll just turn up and do it. See the parallel to our Christian life? You see that? Ah, Train yourself in godliness, Paul says in 1 Timothy. Train yourself in godliness. I just rock up and don't do anything. Why, how, how do these guys bring this stuff? How do they know this stuff? How do they do this stuff? Put the work in. Discipline. Play according to the rules. You want to grow in the things of God. Play according to the rules. Now listen, don't hear what I'm not saying. Rule keeping will not get you saved. All right, not at all. Grace alone, that's it. You want to grow in holiness, you've got to give yourself to growing in holiness. You want to grow in Christ, you've got to give yourself to it. You want to grow in your knowledge of God, guess what? You've got to read the word that he has said and given to us in order to grow in it. Not like the past notes or the Bible in a year app, which Pippa says. I can't even read the whole Nicky Gumble bit. I'll just read the two sentences that Pippa says. That ain't going to grow you in Christ. The real thing, the word of God. I'm training like mad on Zwift. Because one day I want to be able to keep up with Chris and not embarrass myself that he's eating his dinner Whilst I'm dying. I mean, he's always going to be ahead of me, but that's part of the nature of being a brother in Christ. And then just when we think it's getting exciting, I love where Paul goes. Because, you know, you can kind of think, I love to be a soldier. That sounds quite fun. The excitement, the drama. Yes, all right, a bit dangerous, but wow. Love to be an athlete. Yeah, all right, you've got to put hard work in, but let's come and cheer. And I get the applause of everybody. And then Paul just switches it and goes, okay, soldier, athlete, farmer. Completely devoid of any excitement, completely removed from glamour, completely removed from peril, really, any kind of applause. Here's the farmer. He does not sow his seed, and then the crops all stand up and go, great job, bro. The animals are not dancing in the barn when he turns up. He has to just get on with it and do it. Whether it's raining, whether the sun's out, whether the soil seems to be good or whether the soil seems to be poor, whether he feels inclined to do it or disinclined to do it, the farmer gets up out of his bed in the middle of the night and does the work. See the parallels? See where this is going? It's not always easy for the farmer. It's not even always fun. I imagine there are some moments where it might be. But in the end, here he says, the first share of the crops goes to him. He deserves it. It's a biblical principle. Galatians 6, this is 7 to 9. Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. For the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. That's the principle, guys we reap what we sow if we want to grow in god if we want to grow in the things of god if we want to grow in holiness we need to recognize that it's a harvest true it's a fruit or a harvest of the spirit he's the one who's the chief farmer who produces the crop in our life but we have our part to play as well if we want to reap the har- harvest of holiness then we need to walk by the spirit we need to sow to the spirit we need to follow his promptings and his obedience and we need to discipline ourselves we want to see a harvest of salvation then we've got to sow Got to be disciplined with it. Yes, God gives the growth. Yes, he's the one who saves. But we have our part to play. The more seed you sow, the more likely it is we're going to reap some kind of harvest. We've got to be the soldier, the athlete, the hardworking farmer. And I'll be blunt with you. At times in the Christian life, that is really easy. Everything seems to be going Great. Everything I do seems to be going wonderfully well. Everybody's happy with me. Life's happy with me. Everything's great. Whoa! And that's our experience for like a little bit. Because a lot of the time, the Christian life is not like that. It's hard work. Just feel like... Every corner you go around, bang, getting splattered again. And it takes every little bit of effort to peel myself up off the floor to even just drag myself into a place where I'd even open the word of God or come and see face-to-face with that person who's just repeatedly slapped me in the face, kind of metaphorically, hopefully. It's hard. But here's the thing. Anything worthwhile always is. We've bought a lie that we think, if we think anything worthy or worthwhile of our time should just be joyous and fun and wonderful and skippy all the time. I mean, I just think about my kids, right? There are moments with my kids where it is all fun and all things bright and beautiful. But oftentimes, it feels like the scales are balanced the other way. Now, the Christian life is not supposed to be one of toil and strife the whole time. It's really not. It's supposed to be characterized by joy and rejoicing and knowledge of the goodness of God. But we need to fight for that. That don't just come just naturally just by sitting there. That comes by going, Saul, wake up as well with you and fighting for it. And it comes by discipline. It comes by giving ourselves to the pursuit of God. And sadly, in our culture today, even in our Christian culture, discipline is so often misunderstood and criticized as legalism. You're just being legalistic, Lighten up a bit. No, it's not. Discipline is the means for growing in God. Hebrews 11 verse 6 says, Without faith it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. He rewards those who earnestly seek him. That's the key. And if we were just to stop here, we're coming in to finish in a moment, if we were just to stop here, be a soldier, be an athlete, be a farmer, depending on your personality, some of us are going, yeah, I can do this, that's me. And a whole bunch of us are going Pfft. yet another message of, "I've got to be better, I've got to do more, I've got to work harder, I've got to be smarter, I've got to be blah. But Paul doesn't leave it there. Paul doesn't even start it there because the gospel is not a message of "you need to do better." It's not a message of, "work harder, pull yourself up, get it all together. It's not a message for those who are strong and got it all together and can do all of this kind of stuff. It's a message recognizing that every single one of us is not better, is not stronger, hasn't got it all together and can't possibly do any of this stuff by ourselves. Turn back to verse 1 for a moment. You then, my child, be strengthened. Be strong. Stand firm. In what? Not in his own abilities. Timothy was weak and timid and pretty much useless. Not in any of that. This is not a do better. Be strengthened, By the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Yeah, bless you too, Margaret. That's it. Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. There is nothing that you can do or I can do or anyone can do outside of his strengthening grace power that comes by grace and by grace alone you don't deserve it you can't earn it he freely gives it to you and he pours it out to you so many christians get this we understand salvation comes by grace alone i didn't choose him he chose me there was nothing in on of me that was intrinsically of worth and value that god said yep he's worth saving we get that it's grace alone and yet then so many of us try and live our lives alone thanks god for the saving bit i've got it from here what are you doing Paul's reminder to Timothy is your bold endurance, your ability to stand firm, your ability to be able to be a soldier, a farmer, a, an athlete, any of those things, it's got nothing to do with you and your strength and your ability. It's got everything to do with being strengthened by God's empowering grace. So how do, you, how do you get strengthened by God's grace? We'll end with this. First up, you recognize your weakness. Recognize your weakness. Some of us are better at doing this than others. Some of us, particularly blokes, weakness, not me. <laughs> And you know it because you look in the mirror every morning and you see yourself. What you put on is something else. But we start by recognizing our weakness. That's a good thing. Because it's in that moment of of weakness that we begin to recognize that we're a perfect candidate for Christ's grace and his strength and his powering. If you find yourself weak and desperate for strength, you're in a very good place. Paul says to the Corinthians, his grace is sufficient. In his, Christ's grace is sufficient in his weakness. If you find yourself and recognize that you're somebody who is weak. You can't do this in your own strength. You join the number of faithful servants from Hebrews 11 verse 34 who were made strong out of weakness. Throughout history... God has used men and women for his plans and purposes who have all learned this message. We're made strong, not by leaning into ourselves, but by being strengthened in him. Charles Spurgeon, who great preacher, did tons of things, planted loads of churches, raised up tons of leaders all over London. There's buildings with his name written all over it. Amazing man, did loads and loads of stuff. He was once asked, how do you do all of this stuff? How do you achieve any of it? And he just said, you've forgotten that there are two of us. He didn't try and do it all himself. God's presence in us supplies all that we need to endure. We just need to learn to look at him and lean into him. That's the second thing. First, recognize your weak. Second, look to Jesus. See it here, verse 8. Remember Jesus Christ. We must never lose sight of Jesus. Paul says, keep your attention on Jesus. And in many ways, think that through. That seems like an utterly ridiculous thing to say. How are we going to forget Jesus? Never going to forget Jesus. We always forget Jesus. We're so fickle. Time and time again, we see in Scripture, Israel forgets who God is and just wanders off into some nonsense mess that they get themselves into. I know in my own life, if I forget Jesus, if I don't daily look at him, if I don't daily come to him afresh, I find myself like that ridiculous gazelle wandering off over here. And what am I doing? Get back into this. Fix your eyes on Jesus. In particular, I need to remember him. Verse 8 Here, as the one who is both risen from the dead, he's the one who died for our sins, the one who was raised to life so that we could die to sin and be raised to new life in Christ ourselves, I need to remember that part of him, and I also need to remember the other part of him here, he's the offspring of David, the one who took on flesh, the one who was tempted in every single way and yet was without sin, and the one who has now established his kingdom as great David's greater son. When I look at those things together and remind myself of what they are together, I recognize he's both the Savior and the King, and I need to be strengthened in his grace, and I need to remember that he's both Savior and King, and so I need to submit my life to him, and I need to recognize that my life is now hidden in Christ. And so now I need to remind myself every single day of what I already possess as a Christian. Because my life is now hidden in Christ, all of the consequences of his work, all of the of everything that Jesus did, his death and his resurrection, all the results of that now become mine. And I have a hope and a future and a security and a certainty and a sure and certain foundation on which I build and a great eternal joy and one I can know now because of the work of Christ. But at the same time, because my life is hidden in Christ, because of his perfect life that has been credited to me, all of his perfection in his life also becomes mine. And so I see that he's the perfect dedicated soul I see that he's the perfect uh, disciplined athlete who plays by the rules and doesn't cut corners. I see that he's the perfect hard-working farmer who gets the first fruits. I see that he's the one who is perfect in all his ways. And that perfection is now credited to me. My life is now hidden in his. And so simply fixing our eyes on jesus is a reminder not i gotta do 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 it's a reminder of who i now am because my life is hidden in him the one who is perfect in all ways that's the strengthening that takes place how do i do that how do i look to him I look to him through my personal devotion. I look to him through reading of the word. I look to him through singing it, reading it, praying it, obeying it. I look to him through sharing it. I look to him through guarding it and passing it on to others. I recognize that all other attempts at self-improvement, frankly, outside of him, just being honest with you and blunt, are sinful and not pleasing to him. Only through knowing him and relying on him can we become like him and share in his life. And that means it matters what you look at because what you see you become. What your eyes see is what you become. And it's not that, we'll look at Jesus and then run away and have a sense of who he is. And now I'm trying to copy him and try and be like him. What we understand biblically, what's happening is that the more we look at him, the more we become like him. The very sight of seeing Jesus is a transforming thing. As transforming thing. As we contemplate him by faith, we are beginning to be transformed into his likeness. There is a day coming, our eternal destiny, when we will see him face to face and physically body and soul, we will be like him. Until that day, the sight of him now by the spirit, by faith makes us more like him spiritually. And so his grace begins to change us. It's like this eruption of beautiful, glorious light into our otherwise darkness. And we, it begins to illuminate things. And it begins to make our face shine. And it begins to drive away our darkness. And it begins to bring warmth to our lives. It begins to bring newness to our lives. It turns our hearts from worldly passions to godly passions. It turns our hearts from, off from ourselves and on to him. And we need to remind ourselves that this comes from looking at Jesus. Because our default setting is busyness. Busyness even busyness in good things, even busyness in the passing it on and the church and the mission and do this and do this and serve all these people. But busyness causes us to look down and look away. And busyness leads to frustration. And busyness leads to apathy. And busyness leads to exhaustion, physically, spiritually, emotionally. And busyness leads to cynicism and we get burnt out and chewed up by church and we just get blah with it all. And the antidote to busyness... Is not do more, is be more. Be more in the presence of God. Be more fixing of our eyes upon Jesus Christ. Be more who we already are because of what Jesus has done for us. Just gonna end with this. I read a guy called John Owen this week from seventeenth century, and he says this Do any of us find decays in grace prevailing in us? Deadness, coldness, lukewarmness? kind of spiritual stupidity and senselessness coming upon us. Let us assure ourselves there is no better way for our healing and deliverance, yea, no other way but this alone, namely the obtaining a fresh view of the glory of Christ by faith and a steady abiding therein. Constant contemplation of Christ and his glory, putting forth its transforming power unto the revival of all grace is the only relief in this case. And As I read more about this guy, John Owen, I suddenly was blown away by him. In the 1650s, he was chancellor at Oxford University. Life was good, and then the government started applying pressure to him, and life turned out to be really quite bad. He was harassed, and all sorts of things happened to him. But outweighing all of that, is he had to witness the burial of all 11 of his children and his wife. And after the death of the first 10 children, he wrote these words. A due contemplation of the glory of Christ will restore and compose the mind. It will lift the minds and hearts of believers above all the troubles of this life and is the sovereign antidote that will expel all the position that is in them, which otherwise might perplex and enslave their souls. Ten kids he buried. And he said, it's by fixing my eyes on Jesus There's an antidote to all the problems of this life. This saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. If we deny him, he'll also deny us. If we're faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot and he will not deny himself. And our lives are hidden in Christ. And he cannot and he will not deny us either.